0: If we haven't met before, my name is Judah. I get to hang out with the young adult here at Bridgeway. Young adults, where are we at? That is just to say, if you are between the ages of 18 and 25 and you're not a part of that, uh, today let's rectify that. We'd love to meet you. Uh, I'll be in the lobby after this, and I would love to connect with those of you who are 18 and to 25 that are not a part of uh, the family yet. I remember the first time I came to do kind of like my initial trial, like preaching at BYA, and it was in the middle of the pandemic, and we were out at the park, and Candace was like straining her voice trying to lead worship with no mics, and there were like 40 students there, and we've hit the fourth consecutive week of Breaking 100 on a Thursday night. I'm excited about what God is doing here at Bridgeway. And if you do know a young adult who's in that age range, next week we are having The Collective, which is where young adult ministries from all across the region come and worship here with us. And so we're talking about nearly a thousand young people on this campus. That's a great event to invite folks that you know to, and y'all invite people to, y'all invite people to. Our senior pastor and lead teacher, uh, Pastor Lance, is taking a well-deserved mini vacation uh, with his wife and daughters for the next three weeks. And so for better or worse, for two of those three weeks, he's left you in my hands. Now, I gave myself a whole little pep talk about this. I said, now, self, myself said, hmm. I said, we're gonna preach good while pastor is gone, right? Yes, we're not gonna preach no heresy, right? Mm -mm. We're not going to preach nothing controversial, right? Mm -mm. We're not going to do anything difficult, right? Mm -mm. As soon as he got in that car and drove off, my other self said, let's have a good time. (laughs) So that's what I want to do today. We're actually, for the next three weeks, going to be in a mini-series that examines the power of freedom. For this year, we are going through a year-long series called The Empowered Church, and most of that series is through the book of Acts. Acts. Um, And we're going to keep talking about power even over these next three weeks, the power of freedom. But we're going to be looking at some other portions of scripture that I think demonstrate uh, the power of freedom and how perhaps we can step into it. And so if you hate the message, you can email me at B as in boy, Kylie at bridgeway.church. That's B-K-I-L-E-Y at bridgeway.church. I'd love to hear from you. I've been thinking a lot about freedom this week. This week in particular, tomorrow, Monday, is the federal holiday Juneteenth. If you're not familiar with the holiday, Juneteenth is the date that we celebrate the freedom of black people in this country. If you're a bit of a history buff like I am, you know that on January 1st, 1865, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which outlawed slavery in this country. And the challenge is it took a while for that news to spread to all the states and it took even longer for it to be enforced uh, especially in the southern states and so on June 19th 1865 Major General Gordon Ranger, um, Granger excuse me, he decided to enforce the law in Texas and so we celebrate that holiday it's known as the longest running African-American holiday in this country because it is the date that everybody was finally free and I think about that. I think about the importance of freedom. You know, not, not in part just because without it, like I wouldn't be able to be here today in this integrated, mixed church with a lot of different kinds of people. I certainly wouldn't be able to teach here. And, and so it just reminds me of the power of freedom and what can happen when we're free. And the reality is that freedom is actually a Christian tenet. Freedom is what Jesus came to bring. It's what he hung from a tree for. I see that as a black person, as an act of solidarity. But it, it was something that he did for all of us so that we could all be free. Free from sin and free from death and free from hell and free to love and be loved by an amazing God. And he completed that work when he was resurrected on the third day, and yet some of us aren't fully free yet. And I was thinking about the kinds of things that enslave us. I was thinking about the sort of things that that enslave people, and there are many things. I was thinking about the ways that people are enslaved by financial insecurity that sometimes can culminate in that kind of chronic homelessness that we see on the streets. And I was thinking about sex trafficking and, and how there are some 5.1 million people being trafficked just in the Americas alone. And I was thinking about how people are enslaved by drugs right? Uh, A few weeks ago, our our staff here at Bridgeway, we were all trained on how to administer Narcan, Narcan, which is a a pharmaceutical that slows down somebody in the middle of an overdose. And I was thinking as they were training us, I was thinking, you know, Judah, when you were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and said, I'm going to seminary because I want to be a pastor, I just did not think that was going to be part of the job. You understand? Like, that doesn't really come up in New Testament theory. There are so many things that enslave us And you may be sitting there and thinking to yourself, oh, I'm so glad I'm not a slave. I'm I'm not homeless, I'm not being sex trafficked, I'm not on drugs, I'm not addicted to anything safe, perhaps cinnamon rolls. As a believer, I'm so glad to be free. But are you? Like, are you for real? John 8 and 36 says, whom the sun sets free is truly free indeed. You ever thought about that indeed part? Like, what does that indeed part mean? And I would submit to you that it means I'm free completely and totally. I am free from and free for. I I, I am completely free. And a lot of us, a lot of us have been freed from, from addictions and from habits and choices and alcoholism and porn and whatever else. We've been freed from a lot of things except, except, except what has happened to us. Some of us have not been freed from what happened to us, from the ways that that we have been harmed and traumatized by the world and the folks in it around us. And many of us have internalized those those harms and traumas, and built whole lives around them. And they have manifested as habits and fears and dysfunctions that we've lived with so long, we don't even realize we're in bondage. But I come today that you might be free. I want you to repeat after me, and this is also your fill in the blank. Say this with me. What has happened to me me. does not have to imprison me. The kids try to guess the fill in the blanks beforehand. What has happened to me does not have to imprison me. And I hope to give you five steps today, five steps toward becoming free indeed from what has happened to you. And whatever it is, I pray in Jesus' name that these five steps would help you find freedom. I wanna jump into the text. We're gonna be in Genesis chapter 45 this morning. We're gonna read a lot of text. A lot of the text today, I don't apologize for it, I think that the text is the most important part of the sermon. If you didn't know before, you'll know when we're done. You go to a Bible reading church, Genesis 45. When you have it, say amen. amen. I want to encourage you to stay present as we read this lengthy passage of Scripture. I know it can be easy to tune out and drift off, but just try to stay present and lean into the intricacies of the text. Verse one, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come, come near to me, please. And so they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God, sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land these two years. And there are yet five years, which there will be neither plowing nor harvest." And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, hurry, go, go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. And do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Y'all still with me? If your neighbor's sleep, kick him. This is the climax in a profound and familiar story, it's the story of Joseph. And often when this story is taught or preached on or talked about, we talk a lot about how everything that God had promised Joseph, everything that that God had shown Joseph in his dreams had come to be. We talk a lot about how Joseph's latter days were greater than his former days, and we do so by looking at all of the wealth and all of the power and all of the prestige and the prominence and and the authority that he had at the end of his story compared to the beginning of his story. But it is not noted enough, in my opinion, that all of these things, all of the wealth and the power and the position, that none of them were freeing for him that they did not bring him freedom. The true redemption of Joseph wasn't what he had acquired but was the moment when he was finally freed, fully freed from what happened to him. It was not enough for him to become successful. It was not enough that he had risen through the ranks and climbed from the prison to the palace and that he had, he had married well, a beautiful woman. The text doesn't tell us that she was beautiful, but just go with me, we're gonna assume she was beautiful that he had sired a beautiful family, that he had come to live lavishly in the cushion of the palace, operating in his purpose, in his gifting as a leader and a politician and an administrator, all of that was great, but it was not freeing. And some of us have fooled ourselves into conflating success with freedom. I'm gonna get in your business today, I'm just letting you know right now, kick off your shoes and get comfortable. Some of us, have told ourselves that because I survived it, I'm free of it. That because I have, I have not repeated what happened to me, I'm free of it. That because I don't look like what I've been through, that must mean I'm free of it. Because I don't live in the place that it happened in, I must be free of it. But are you free indeed? Are you so free? That if the persons who did it, you know, the ones who caused the harm, the ones who, who took blows that shattered pieces of your spirit, if they were to walk up to you right now, would you be willing to use every resource you had available to bless them in every manner to the fullest extent possible? Would you be willing? Because that's, I mean, that's what freedom looks like. Joseph would not find himself to be truly free until, until his tears had washed away the resentment, had cooled the anger, had soothed the heartache, had ushered in such a flood of forgiveness that finally he could see the way God could use the darkest depravities of dysfunctional people and families and somehow use what happened to him to bring God glory. In this story, you have a family wrought with dysfunction. Some of y'all know what that's like. You know, you clean up and look real cute at church, but we, we know when you get home. This family is led by a father, a patriarch, who for whatever reason could not raise children to love each other. He could not raise his sons to love one another. Some of you know what it is to come from a family that doesn't have the skill set of love. I'm not talking about the feeling of love, I'm talking about the skill set. There's a skill set of love. And some of you know what it is to come from a family that doesn't have that. And this particular family was so dysfunctional, Joseph's brothers had pushed beyond the common teasing, you know, that happens amongst brothers. They had pushed beyond the point of insult to humiliation. And they didn't just humiliate him they tore the clothes from his back and they beat him. Some of you know what it is to be in situations where you are physically harmed by folks who were supposed to love you. And the text tells us that they beat him and then they conspired to murder him, to literally murder him. If you got kids, I want you to try to get your mind around this. The idea, because I know, you know, some of you got kids where, you know, th- Thanksgiving, everybody's on eggshells or, you know, we're not going to talk about politics at the dinner table because somebody's going to throw a knife or, you know, maybe you even have children that are estranged from each other. You know, they just aren't talking right now. But most of us do not, can't even conceptually wrap our minds around the idea that I could raise children that could conspire to murder each other. And it's, it's 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 not even like it. The text tells us that well, Joseph's brothers just lost control, and somebody grabbed a cast iron skillet, and you knew if they made it around this dinner table, somebody was going to be dead by the time it was all said and done. They conspired to kill him. That means they sat down and they thought about it. They planned it. And instead, they end up throwing him in a pit without any consideration for how deep that pit would be or how dark that pit would be or what it would do to his body to be thrown into a pit or what sort of lions and jackals might be at the bottom of that pit willing to consume him. Some of you know what it is to be treated with that kind of disregard. They just cared nothing for him, cared nothing about him. And whatever brothers, there were 12 of them, whatever brothers might not have Physically been a part of throwing him in, into the pit and beating him. It didn't take all 12, 12 on one. You know, you only need 12 on one, right? If you ever do a character study of Judah, you can imagine that I was interested in him. Uh, it's easy to imagine a scenario where maybe Judah didn't participate as much. It is Judah that tells them, hey, don't, don't kill him. Let's do something else. But even if Judah didn't participate, Judah and others stood by and watched as they abused him. You ever had somebody stand by and watch as you're being harmed? You sat there and watched some people hurt me. You watched them dishonor me. You watched them disregard me. You didn't lift up a hand. You didn't lift up a voice. You didn't step in and try to, you didn't even call for help. You watched them harm me. You were complicit in it. And then not just to, not just to suffer, but to, to, to benefit from his suffering to sell him to the Ishmaelites. You could have just given me away. You could have just say, I don't want you. We don't want you, go, 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 go. But you sold me for 20 shekels of silver. Scholars estimate it to be enough to feed a family for a couple of months. I'll make it plain for you. You sold me for a couple hundred dollars. You decided that what I was worth what my well being, what my livelihood was worth, was a couple hundred dollars or a few moments of pleasure, or so you could feel powerful, or so you could advance in some way, or for no good reason at all, you sold me. And it wasn't just that, you know, that they hated him and they dogged him and they mistreated him. If you get old enough, you'll learn it's always haters. It's always somebody that's not going to be on your team, that's not going to be in your corner, that's not going to want the best for you. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't just that they heard him. Listen, I think Pastor Lance is the most gifted, compassionate, generous, wonderfully one of the best leaders I've ever had the privilege of sitting under, and even Lance is going to get his fair share of emails from people that say, oh, you're awful on terrible and i not be a pastor. Like, like you get old enough and you realize haters come with the territory. It wasn't just what they did often the things that damage us the most aren't just damaging because of the thing itself but because of the who the thing is attached to it was his brothers it was it was the folks his older brother you you were supposed to protect me that was your job you you're the ones who if I come home from the park because I say look kid hit me at the park with a big stick the whole tribe's supposed to run out of house ready to burn the park down That was your job, and instead, see, I could have stomached it had it been somebody else. I could have dealt with it. I would have been all right. I would have navigated right on through it, but because it was you, what I hope, I hope that, I'll be honest, I hope that that, that there's some triggering happening. I hope that as you're thinking about that, I hope things are coming up for you. And I hope that because I realize that in order to get to freedom from what has happened to us, we have to get to the same place Joseph was at the beginning of the passage. Look at verse 1 again. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He couldn't fake it anymore. He couldn't ignore it anymore. He couldn't pretend that it didn't happen. But finally, he lost it. I want you to write this down. The first step and really getting free from what happened, is to fully acknowledge that it happened, to fully examine it, you got to look at what happened. You have to fully grieve it, to grieve the loss, to let the little girl have her day to fall apart to let the little boy have his day to fall apart without you saying, all right, boy, get up, stop all that crying, dust yourself off. You've got to take inventory of what was taken from you. You've got to unpack the way it hurt and how it impacted you and what it cost. And one of the things that gets in the way of doing that for believers is that sometimes we think that acknowledging what was lost takes away from the blessing that is. That if Joseph counts the cost and says, what you did to me cost me watching my daddy grow old. What you did to me cost me watching my brother Benjamin grow up. That if we acknowledge that, if we, if we sit for a moment in the grief of it and count the cost, that it diminishes the blessing we can see on the other side. But you know what? We can multitask. How about that? I can hold in one hand that because my daddy wasn't what I needed him to be. I'm a pastor today. I can trace that line from the beginning all the way here. I can hold that because my daddy wasn't what I needed him to be that I was raised by strong believing women who shaped a lot of the way I think about things and so I can process things in ways that lots of other men cannot that are that are more similar to the ways that women process things. It has helped me in ministry I can hold the ways that God used my father's inability to be what I needed him to be while also in the other hand, I can hold the reality that my father not being what I needed him to be wrecked my conception of manhood. I spent years trying to figure out what does it mean to be a man, that my father's inability to be what I needed him to be wrecked my conception of sexuality, that to this day, I question, am I man enough? What does manhood look like? What does it sound like? I do my work with my therapist, that's why I can stand on this stage in a pink suit. But I can hold both. I can hold both. I can hold the ways God used it to bless me and the ways that it caused damage to my life. We can multitask. Joseph is both the governor of Egypt and the boy who was sold and freedom only comes from examining it from taking a long hard look at what happened to you you know for the believer grief is actually not something we have to fear i was talking to um david Heltzler; he's uh the director of our mental health care uh, services here at bridgeway i wanted his eyes on this message before it got to you and and he said something profound he said Grief is an ongoing, lifelong process of connection and love. He said, grief is truly the other side of love. Our love and our grief for ourselves and others, he said, are are two sides of the same coin. And so when we allow ourselves to connect to our grief, what we're actually connecting to is our love and our humanity. He's deep and smart, I'll make it simple for you. The great poet Robert Frost said, the only way through is through. And you may be sitting there and thinking to yourself, Judah, I'm too old, I'm 67, I've got children, I've got grandchildren, I'm too old to go back to when I was seven and unpack what happened. I'm too old, the people in my life now don't even know that part of me, I'm too old. No, you're not. We're just not gonna let the devil lie to us today. If you still got breath in your lungs, that means God is not through with you. And so what that means is that freedom can still be yours. And, and maybe you're sitting there and you're like Joseph, who was not waiting or likely even aware that he needed freedom. Joseph thought, my life has peaked. I got everything that I need. I, 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 got, I got the money. I got the job. I got the woman. I got the children. I'm operating in, in the fullness of my giftings and my talents. My life can't get no better. But what if it can? Like, what if it can You got to look at it. Joseph had to look and see what had happened to him and how it had changed the trajectory of his life, how it brought up questions in him. Who might I have been if it didn't happen to me? What, what might I be like if you hadn't done what you did to me? Joseph had to ask those questions, and he had to review his life. And when he reviewed his life, he, like many of us, saw that he had pulled himself up by his bootstraps, that everywhere Joseph went, he survived. And not only did he survive, but he thrived. He thrived in Potiphar's house, the man who had bought him from the Egyptian slave market. Thrived and blessed, was able to, to make the man who owned him wealthy and successful. And when he was falsely accused, some of you know what that feels like. It doesn't feel very good. When he's thrown wrongfully into prison, he survived in prison, leaning into his gifts and talents and anointing until he pulls himself from the, from the prison to the palace and, and he survives the palace. See, a lot of us think that when you make it to the top, things all of a sudden become easy. That's not true. Generally, the higher you climb, the harder it gets. And it was hard for him in the palace. Like, y'all think, y'all think everybody was excited about him coming to the palace? This boy that came from Alcatraz and then went to the White House and got the vice president position overnight? You think everybody had a good attitude about that? That boy ain't even Hebrew. I mean, he ain't even Egyptian. He's Hebrew, right? But he survived a place of crazy political dynamics and treachery, and, and he... he did something with the hand that he was dealt with in a way that that blessed all of Egypt. And it's when he's at the apex of his career, when you can't go no further, ain't no other place to climb. You didn't got all the promotions, you got all the money, everything is right there, you're at the top of your game. That is when God says, and guess what, I got more for you. I got some freedom for you. I got some freedom indeed for you. And it lives in the full forgiveness of those who did it and in the lives, in, 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 in a life of full relinquishing, relinquishing what happened to you. And maybe you're like Joseph and you're like, I have moved on, Judah. Joseph wasn't thinking about them people. Joseph, I ain't thought about them people in 25 years. I'm not thinking about them. I don't, I don't even live in the same place I used to live with all that pain. I, I will tell you this, um, relocation and freedom are not synonyms When you leave, when you move, you take you with you. It's why when you have those trauma flare-ups, I don't have trauma flare-ups, Judah. You sure? Your wife sure did email into the prayer team, talking about that irritability you got. (laughs) Talking about that hypervigilance, people just say, oh, you're just an over-preparer. You just prepare hypervigilance, that trouble sleeping, those eating habits, That spirit of busyness on you, you just can't, you just, you got time for everybody else but you. Just packed, packed schedule. That inability or high discomfort that you have in being alone. I'm not talking about extroverts who just enjoy people. I'm talking about you can't stand being by yourself. You can't stand silence. The TV got to be on, the radio got to be on, the music got to be on, something. there's got to be some noise because you can't stand being alone. That hyper suspicion of anyone or anything new, every time somebody brings somebody new into the friend group or somebody new comes and works at the job, you are suspicious and nervous about them. That savior complex, you know how you like swoop in and just you want to rescue everybody and save everybody and do everything. Listen, I'm not a doctor. I can't diagnose you. I don't have nearly the... Um, education required to do such a thing. I'm just saying maybe, maybe that's that trauma and bondage peeking his head up. So step one, fully examine it. There is a second half to fully examining that I don't want you to miss in this text though. Look at the middle of verse one. It says, he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud. And what's so powerful about this to me We don't read that Joseph cried at any other part in the story. We don't read that he cried until he is face to face with what happened. He didn't cry when they threw him in the pit. He didn't cry when they sold him into slavery. He didn't cry when when he was thrown into prison. He didn't cry when he got married or had children or when he ascended in the palace. We don't read that he cried until he's face to face with what happened to him. I just want you to know, Joseph wasn't a wimp. I'd have cried when I told him my dream and they talked trash. I'd have wept right then. Y'all should see me in Lance's office when, when I get a nasty email. Pastor, they don't like me. But not Joseph. But in the moment when he has to look at what happened to him, the text tells us he shed tears. Perhaps it's time you let yourself fully cry. And you may say, Judah, I have cried a thousand times. I've cried so many times. I'm tired of crying. I don't want to cry anymore. And I would ask you, but like, have you let yourself cry without judgment? Have you let yourself cry without also standing over your shoulder and saying, all right, now, this is the fifth time you cried. You got to wrap it up. Dry up those tears. Come on, girl. You can't keep crying. Have you let yourself cry without judgment of it? I would encourage you to fully examine it and grieve it. The next step in finding freedom from what happened to you, at least for Joseph, was also found in that same text, middle verse one. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. There are two things I want you to notice. It says, he made himself known to his brothers. That is him saying... I'm actually not just like the governor of Egypt, like everybody thinks I am. I'm actually Jacob's youngest son, and this is what happened to me. It says, and he wept aloud. This is the important part, though. So that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. He let it be heard. I'm processing through some things. I'm working through something. It's some things in me that are not resolved yet, that are not done yet. I'm working through my stuff. And frankly, maybe processing through your stuff is something that you shouldn't do alone. This is when it is real good to go to a church that has a whole mental health care department called Soul Care with professional mental health clinicians that are ready to journey with you. This is when it's good to go to a church that has a whole chaplaincy program with trained chaplains that will come in in a moment of crisis and be with you. This is when it's a good time to go to a church that has Stevens ministry with people who will come alongside you and do one-on-one life for as long as you need. This is when it's good to go to a church that has a deliverance ministry with trained people who know how to cast out and call down power. I'm just saying it's a good day to be at Bridgeway. Step one, (laughs) fully examine it, acknowledge and grieve what happened. Step two, write this down, open it up in a safe place. The truth is that healing is a community practice. They don't teach that in the West. They teach it in the East. Healing is not meant to be done alone. So open it up in a safe space and you get to determine what that space is for you. We see Joseph makes the space safe before he falls apart. Everyone get out. Servants out. Doctors out. Teachers, everybody out. I just want my brothers in here. Right? He made the space safe and then he he took off his governor's crown and he made himself known. And he was vulnerable. It says that he let the household of Pharaoh hear him cry. You know how hard it is to like ugly cry in front of your boss? I mean like snot and t- You know how, how vulnerable that is? If you don't work at a church, you probably don't know. We, we work at a church, so we, you know, we, we you know, we just <laughs> being in Lance's office, just, just muddying up his poor couch. Right? He was vulnerable. Freedom requires vulnerability. Freedom requires you to say, you know what, I actually have to take off the governor's crown sometimes. I have to take off the things that maybe make me look good and feel good and feel like I'm I'm able to do my job. I got to take some stuff off sometimes so that I can just be seen not as Judah the pastor but as Judah the person because in order to get to freedom, I have to take some things off and get vulnerable. I would encourage you to think about what you need to take off and in front of who. And what you see is that in this moment of vulnerability and sharing, Joseph was able to see what happened to him in a different way. Look at the way he tells the story after his examination of it and after his vulnerability. Verse four, he says, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now, 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 now that I have processed it, now that I have grieved it, now that I have wept over it, now that I have opened it up in a safe place, now that I have begun to do my work, now, now I can forgive you. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. I love that he doesn't pretend it didn't happen. Right? He tells you, you sold me, you did it. i say it, you did it. You sold me here. But what we see is that now he's able to see God in it. And I I, I want you to be clear, you don't force yourself to see God in it. You ask God to reveal himself in it because God cannot be seen lest God reveal himself. This is why when when Christians have a chip on their shoulder for being Christians, it gets on my nerves. You ain't do nothing to be a Christian. You prayed that prayer because God moved the scales from your eyes. You ought to say thank you, right? So here's your step three, ask God to reveal himself in the midst of what happened. God, where were you? Where were you in it? Where were you when it was happening? Where were you when I was hurting? What were you up to? How are you gonna use this to bless my life? How are you gonna use this to get glory? And listen, that's a hard conversation to have with God. And it's a long conversation. And you may not even get the full answer on this side of heaven. Joseph would never see how far God took the ripples of what happened to him. He would never see that God used what happened to him to bring a family into Egypt so that that family could become a people. Israel started off as a family. It became a people because God used Joseph to bring that family into the perfect scenario where that family could multiply. And then when it multiplied, God said, when it's time, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt and I'm going to bring you into the wilderness, this people into the wilderness where he would shape and and refine and, and teach them what it was to be God's people. And that people would become 12 tribes and two kingdoms. And from those 12 tribes and two kingdoms comes one man and one woman and God would lay his hands on the woman and she would become pregnant with a baby who would become the boy Jesus who astounded the teachers of the temple. And that boy would Grow on to become a man who could feed five thousand and heal the blind and the lame, and eventually hang from a cross so that you could have freedom. Joseph never saw how far God took the ripples of what happened to him. I wonder what God wants to do with what happened to you. Listen to how Joseph is able to talk about his story once he's engaged in the fullness of healing. He says, middle verse five. God sent me before you to preserve life, for the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. See, Joseph came to a point where he realized God was never not with me. God was never not with me. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here. I know you thought it was you. I know you thought you did it, but it wasn't you. It was, it was God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I'll summarize the rest. Joseph says, so get, go get my daddy and, and tell him I'm all right. Tell them I'm all right. I'm I'm all right. I wasn't all right until y'all came because I I, I I had to face it and I had to grieve it and I had to expose it and I, I had to get some, some support as I walked through it. I needed a catalyst to shift me into freedom. But now that I'm there, I realized the liberty, the key to my liberty is, is forgiving you and seeing God and what happened to me. And so what we see is that Joseph. After, somebody say after. After, you know, it's too many of y'all needed for that little week after. Somebody say after. after. If your neighbor sleep, kick him. I keep telling y'all. After examining, fully grieving, sharing it in safe space, he is finally at a point where he can forgive them. And what I want to be clear about is that forgiveness is generally actually not the first step after trauma. Many of us have been unsuccessful because we've been trying to forgive before we've looked at what we're forgiving. We've been trying to forgive before we grieve. We've been trying to forgive before we begin processing. You gotta do steps one through three before you can get to step four. Write this down, radical forgiveness. Radical is as radical as it sounds. Radical forgiveness. That means it should be unreasonable, it should not make sense, it should be too much, it should be too big, it should be something that you can't do by yourself. Radical forgiveness is the conscious, deliberate decision to release the person and the situation from the debt owed. It is the decision to release yourself from the burden of corrosive resentment i tell you, resentment will kill you if you let it. It'll kill you. It is the the decision to lean into peace of mind because I have done my first three steps, which allowed me to reframe my situation in light of Jesus and release you from the dead. You owe me nothing. You owe me nothing. I forgive you. I'm not even mad at you. And I'm not talking about that passive aggressive thing y'all do. You know how y'all do. I forgive you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a true release. I release you from the debt. You don't even owe me and I'm sorry. Don't worry about it, I'm doing all right. I hope you're all right. Verse 14 says, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And what I want you to see is that there's more crying, right, this is a process. He cried at the beginning, he made some progress, then he had to do some more crying. Cry if that's what you got to do. The text says, and Benjamin wept upon his neck And then Joseph kissed all his brothers, every one of them, everyone that had disrespected, dishonored, and disregarded him. He kissed each of them and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And I want you again, I want you to see what we're saying. Process, process, right? Because what do you think that conversation he had with his brothers consisted of? You think it was all kumbaya and and, and happiness? I imagine Joseph had some questions. Right, I forgive you, but explain to me what you were thinking when you thought it was a good idea to throw me in a pit. Talk to me about what happened. I want you to see that this is, this is a process. It's a multi-step journey. I, I was talking with uh, Pastor Heather. I wanted her eyes on this before I, I got it to you. And, and she was talking about how Joseph had the gift of time and that he took years to work through his stuff. Listen, I just want you to know you ought to gift yourself The gift of time. That is actually okay if your healing process takes a while. If it takes me till I'm 97 to get through my stuff, it'll take me till I'm 97. I got all the time in the world. I'm saved. I got eternity with God. What am I rushing for? Take your time. Gift yourself the time to do your work. Because that's where you find freedom indeed. Let's read verse 16 and we'll wrap up. It says, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beast and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat of the fat of the land. (coughs) This talking for 45 minutes thing ain't always cracked up to be... Listen, your final step in finding freedom from what happens, write this down, is to bless out of it. To bless out of what has happened to you. To prayerfully consider with the Lord, how can I use what happened to me in a way that blesses other people? Bless out of it. So you, one, fully examine it. Two, open it up in safe space. Three, ask God to reveal himself in it. Four, work through radical forgiveness. And then five, bless out of it. And the blessing that can come out of the traumatic place can have a tremendous impact. I want you to skip all the way down to verse 25. Who is calling me? I'm preaching. Oh Lord, family don't really realize I got a job? Skip down to verse 25. (laughs) It says, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And the man's heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. What I want you to see is that your freedom could be tied to somebody else's revival. That a part of the reason you have to do this work is not just for you and for your peace of mind and so you can be healthy, but because somebody else could be depending on you doing your work. You've got to do it. Verse 28, and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. That y'all is freedom. He said, "I I don't care nothing about these wagons. I don't care nothing about these donkeys. I don't care about all the golden oil you brought from Egypt. My son is alive and it is enough. When you get to the point where you can say, it's enough that I'm still, I'm still alive. I, it ain't been easy for me. I done rolled down the mountain. I done busted my head up against a couple of rocks. I walk with a limp now, but I, I, it is enough that I'm here. I'm just glad to be here. When you get to that point, that is freedom. And what we see is that freedom begets freedom. Joseph got free, and that allowed him to free his brothers. When he said, don't be, don't be, don't be distressed about it, don't worry about it, i let it go. He freed his brothers from the weight of the guilt that they had been carrying all those years over what they had done. He said, I free you. And they were able to go home to their daddy and free him. And so this dysfunctional family walks into Egypt looking for food. What they found was freedom. I was talking to Pastor Anthony. I wanted his eyes on this before it got to you. He said that true freedom entails seeing your own narrative through God's eyes rather than constructing it of pain and grudges and all the other ways that we try to medicate and mitigate the things that have happened to us. So look, I'm done. I'm just saying as you leave this weekend, I just want you to, I want you to take a good, good look. I want you to take an inventory of your life. I want you to, to see, just see, just look and see, if perhaps you may still be beholden to what has happened to you, and then I just want you to consider what might be a good step to take. I gave you five, you got options. (laughs) I want you to do this because look, Jesus did not die for you to stay bound. I just think in light of all his suffering, it would just be such a poor way to repay him by staying bound, by staying entrapped in that which Jesus paid for with his blood. The Bible says that he came to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. The Bible says that he came that you might be free indeed. I wanna get to indeed. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you that you are a liberationist. I thank you that you are the great abolitionist. I thank you that before they were talking about freeing slaves and before we were talking about freedom from addiction and before we were talking about freedom from sex trafficking, God, you had a plan for freedom that you were willing to fashion in your flesh and blood. And Father, we really do want to be free indeed. We're absolutely gonna need your help with that. So we invite you to help us. Father, I pray that right now the people in this very room and watching online, that you would bring to the forefront of their mind anything that they still need to work through, stuff that they've buried at the bottom of their shoe, would you bring it to the forefront of their mind and help them to figure out what their next steps are? That we might be a church full of liberated people, people operating in what you paid for, operating in our birthright. Lord, we are stepping up to take what's ours, what you have gifted us, our inheritance, and that's hard work. And so we ask you to help us with it.